Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Mercury is toxic if you ingest it, and it can affect brain development in children. And scientists are finding it almost everywhere they look. We found mercury to be very ubiquitous in the environment. We found it in marine ecosystems and freshwater ecosystems. We found it elevated levels in the northern hemisphere as well as the southern hemisphere. Mercury hotspots around the globe. Also, a Mexican scientist unravels the mystery of why some prairies turned to desert, what was missing, and what happened when the prairie came back. It was mind-blogging because all the way to the horizon, there were prey dogs and prey dogs and prey dogs. And then the next day, we saw badger. Badgers are very rare in Mexico. Golden eagles were also very rare in Mexico. And we saw more than 20 there in one single day. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At least one in every ten school-aged children in the United States has been diagnosed with ADHD. And over the last decade, prescriptions for attention deficit medications are up nearly 50%. There are many theories about the cause of the increase in ADHD, but scientists from Laval University in Quebec have new evidence implicating two notorious toxins. In a study in environmental health perspectives, the researchers found an association between ADHD in children and exposure to mercury and lead. Joining me from Quebec City is one of the study's authors, Dr. Gina Muckle, who's a professor of psychology at Laval University. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So you conducted this study up in the Canadian Arctic. Tell us a little bit about that region and why you chose to do your research there. In the northern part of the province of Quebec, there's about 11,000 Inuit living in in the north. And uh, we've discovered in the beginning of the 80s that this population was among the most highly exposed population around the world with regard to PCBs and mercury. So we decided at that time that we would follow a cohort of babies by taking cold blood samples at their birth and follow them up to school age. Could you please explain the specifics of your study to me? Yes. About 300 newborns who were born between 1993 and 1996 provided cord blood samples for us so we could assess their prenatal exposure to environmental contaminants such as mercury, leads, and PCBs. While they were at school age, which is at 11 years of age, we saw this group of children again, and we did interview with their mother to document different cognitive growth and behavioral effects that we could see in association with their prenatal exposure. At that age, we asked their school teacher to fill in forms to document um, ADHD behavior. Now, how exactly did you measure attention deficit disorder? Well, there's validated questionnaires that we can use that are well used all around the world, aimed to uh, assess the manifestations of ADHD, which are inattention difficulties in school, aggressive behaviors, non-respect of rules, and hyperactivity symptoms. So the teacher were asked to assess those behaviors for all the children. And what were your findings? 
The first most important result is that, is that prenatal mercury exposure was associated with greater attention problems and with an increased risk of teacher-reported symptoms consistent with ADHD. To be more specific, what we observed is that children with higher cord mercury concentrations at birth were about three times more likely to be identified by their teacher in the classroom as exhibiting behaviors characteristics of the inattentive type of ADHD. And what did you find for lead? This exposure was related with uh, greater aggressive and rule-breaking behaviors and with behaviors consistent with ADHD. Actually, 11-year-old children exposed to lead were about four to five times more likely to be classified with hyperactive, impulsive ADHD by their teacher. Now, how, how is it that mercury and lead uh, get into these uh, in the Inuit children? Well, the main exposure source of mercury of the Inuit population is through consumption of beluga meat. And the main source of exposure of lead is through um, the use of lead-containing ammunition for hunting. How relevant are these results for non-Inuit children, uh, those, say, living in the United States or elsewhere in Canada? For lead, the effects that we are reporting are seen at very low level uh, of exposure. We can estimate it from the um, Canadian Health Measure Survey in Canada that there's about 10% of Canadian children between 6 to 11 years who might be exposed to levels greater than the one where we saw a negative effects. According to CDC in the U.S., there's about a half a million of U.S. children aged between one and five with blood lead levels above five micrograms per deciliter, which correspond to about 2.5% of the U.S. population. And the effects we are reporting are below this uh, five microgram per deciliter. So there's certainly, at least in the U.S., more than 5% of the population who are exposed to those levels. What are the primary sources of lead and mercury throughout North America? Mercury travels between countries through air currents. It reached the Arctic uh, as well. And mercury emissions are the primary source of human exposure. Mercury emissions are primarily due to coal combustion for production of electricity. And um, in Canada, and it's probably this, about the same in the United States, China was identified as the largest source of mercury deposition. They are responsible for about 45% of the entire mercury deposition in Canada. What do you hope will come out of your research? We do need to have much more information on what are the determinants of child behavior, especially ADHD. And so far, the scientific research has been conducted to look at many different determinants of ADHD. And I think we're just starting to look at the environment, the physical environment, the chemical environment as a potential determinants of, of such kind of difficulties in children. So, you know, what we hope is to be able to contribute to the explanation of behavioral difficulties in children. Dr. Gina Muckle is a professor of psychology at Laval University in Quebec City. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Now, though mercury or quicksilver can be dangerous when ingested, it's also one of the strangest heavy metals.
It's shiny and liquid at room temperature, and ancient alchemists were intrigued by its ability to dissolve other metals, including gold and silver, but not iron. But the ancients didn't know how toxic mercury is, especially to the brain and kidneys. And even fairly recently, it was widely used in medicine for thermometers, dental fillings, and vaccines. It's also abundant in coal, and coal-burning power plants, along with mercury-based gold mining, have created dangerous levels of mercury pollution worldwide. That's according to David Evers, executive director of the Biodiversity Research Institute, who spoke to us from Geneva. Mr. Evers and his colleagues tested mercury levels around the world to produce a report called Global Mercury Hotspots. We found mercury to be very ubiquitous in the environment. We found it in marine ecosystems and freshwater ecosystems. We found it elevated levels in the northern hemisphere as well as the southern hemisphere. So that was the interesting finding from this is that wherever we looked, we found mercury to be quite elevated. Some of the places that we found especially elevated are in eastern Asia, in India, and China in particular, as well as Europe in the Mediterranean Sea and parts of South America. What's the source of all this mercury in the environment worldwide? I think there's two categories. 32% of the emissions are from small-scale gold mining. So that's the use of mercury to amalgamate with gold while you're in the field and to burn that mercury off so you have gold left on the bottom of your pan. That burning of that mercury and release into the air by 20 or more million people is what's really adding to that mercury emissions uh, into the global pool. And the second piece is the coal-fired power plants. So the burning of coal, in some ways, you're burning in an instant potentially thousands of years of mercury that's been deposited in that piece of coal by nature. So those are the two sources of mercury that are probably most problematic at a global level. In the U.S., of course, there are not a whole lot of people practicing small-scale gold mining. So is it safe to say that most of our exposure here in the U.S. to mercury is coming from fish? And could you please then explain that mechanism of exposure? Sure. The exposure for an average person in the U.S. is primarily through uh, methylmercury and fish. It's so the larger organisms that live long that are on the top of that food web that are most problematic. And a lot of times you'll see in the newspaper or wherever, you'll hear about tuna and swordfish. And it's very true. Those are species that are long-lived and um, are on top of that food web that carry enough methylmercury in their bodies. And if we eat them regularly, then that can increase the mercury levels in our own bodies to troublesome levels. So if someone's concerned about uh, fish that has mercury in it, what should one do? Uh, Is there a difference between wild-caught and farm-raised, a difference between the ocean and freshwater? First of all, fish is a very good resource for us to use, and we have to be smart about our choices and our picks. Generally, farm-raised fish are lower mercury than wild fish, and some fish have higher mercury levels in their bodies, but they may have very good omega-3 fatty acid levels in their body. So sometimes there could be trade-offs in choosing which fish you want. If you want to eat fish low in mercury and high in omega-3, salmon and um, herring, are very good for you. And what about freshwater versus the ocean? Both sort of ecosystems, marine and freshwater, have the ability to methylate mercury and get up in the food web where it can cause some some harm to us. And if we look at species of fish that we commonly eat in the Great Lakes region, for example, such as pike or walleye or bass, those are fish species that can commonly get over one part per million, which is which is fairly high. 
You look closely at 14 different countries for mercury exposure. What was the percentage of people that had uh, concerning levels of mercury that you found in their hair? In those 14 countries that we examined, we found that uh, 84% of the mercury in uh, fish were over our threshold level that we used of uh, 0.22 parts per million. That's equivalent to one six-ounce fish meal per month. And we also found in the hair samples of people uh, around the world in these 14 countries that 82% of the hair samples exceeded the EPA's reference dose of one part per million. Now, last year in 2012, uh, that is, the U.S. uh, EPA promulgated the Mercury and Air Toxic Standards, which will remove 90% of mercury from coal-fired power plants in the U.S. uh, over the next couple of years. So we're making good progress in this country, but China and India is pretty busy with coal-fired power plants. How freely does mercury travel around the world, and what kind of emissions of mercury are we headed for if these uh, new power plants in Asia continue to grow? The U.S. has really pulled together, I think, a very good rule, and I think that will uh, be successful in removing 90% or more of mercury from the emissions from coal-fired power plants, and I think that can be done quite quickly. Probably a bigger looming problem is the mercury that's getting up into the upper atmosphere, into that global pool. And some of the key sources for that mercury in the global pool are China and India and coal-fired power plants. And so once that mercury is up into that global pool, it does move over across the northern hemisphere in North America, and it does deposit in North America. How much that will impact the U.S. and Canada is still something that a lot of modelers are looking at, and a lot of people are trying to better understand. But I'll mention that a study that I had in the Great Lakes, we found that there was an uptick in the last decade of mercury in different species of fish and birds, and other organisms. So I think it is something that we need to keep in our mind that even though we do clean up our backyard, there is more work to be done. David Evers is executive director of the Biodiversity Research Institute. Thanks so much for speaking to us from Geneva. You betcha, Steve. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Just ahead, why some Amish farmers are embracing natural gas fracking. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Electricity, TV, the Internet. The Amish generally live without these technologies, preserving a traditional way of life. But some Amish are saying yes to one very modern, very industrial technology, hydraulic fracturing or fracking for natural gas. In Ohio, some of the best pockets of oil and gas in the east run right under Amish country. The Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier found the drilling is already changing the way some Amish live. It's an overcast day in Carroll County, Ohio, in the southeast part of the state. An Amish farmer, dark, wide-brimmed hat, long beard, buttonless overcoat, is at work on his hillside farm. He mans the seat of what he calls his hired hand. It's a skid steer loader, a kind of mini bulldozer he uses to haul huge piles of feed corn around his dairy farm. The Amish tend to stay away from modern technology, but they do make some exceptions, and this diesel-powered machine is one example. He was able to buy the machine with a new source of money, royalties. He leased his land for drilling a few years ago. He only got $15 an acre back then. But two years ago, 
Chesapeake Energy drilled a well on a neighbor's farm. At around 7,000 feet down, the drill bit turned sideways and went underneath his farm, following an oil and gas-rich rock called the Utica Shale. Soon after, he began receiving royalties. He won't say how much. The farmer, following the beliefs of most Amish, wouldn't allow his voice or name to be used on the radio. But off tape, he said he saw no problem leasing his land for drilling. In his slight German accent, he says, the land was made for people to use. Many of his Amish neighbors feel the same way and have leased their land for drilling. Rigs continue to migrate into this rural county. There are no four-lane highways here, hardly any water and sewer services, and you can forget about most cell phone coverage. Drilling represents a whole new source of income for the Amish here, says Tom Wheaton. He's a Carroll County commissioner. I like to see how they're going to handle it because it's, it makes a major change for people's lives. Case in point, one Amish dairy farmer. He'd been making $40,000 a year by farming. And uh, his first royalty check was for $80,000 one month. <laughs> There's worry this kind of money could have a corrupting influence. As the Amish farmer with the new skid steerer says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And even if you didn't want it, Ohio law makes it very hard to keep the industry from drilling under your land if your neighbors want to drill on theirs. The state can mandate that your land be included in a drilling unit. Because of this and simple economics, drilling is here to stay in Carroll County. It's got the most drilling permits of any county in Ohio. Every day, it seems more and more trucks hauling sand, water, and equipment crowd into the streets of the county seat, Carrollton. It's music to the ears of Amy Rutledge. She's the director of the county's Chamber of Commerce and Visitors Bureau. It's been good for her, personally. She was working part-time before the drilling started in 2011. Now, she's full-time. You see hope in people's eyes again, where it had gotten pretty depressed around here. Rutledge has seen the small Amish community grow since it started coming here in the 1980s. Many had come from Geauga County, east of Cleveland, which had experienced rapid growth in that decade. So they're moving to areas that are not quite as built up. But in a twist of irony, these areas are now on top of some of the most lucrative rock formations in the east. One nearby well produced $30 million in oil and gas. To capture this bounty, companies like Chesapeake use hydraulic fracturing or fracking. This is a process in which millions of gallons of pressurized water, sand, and chemicals are forced down a well to break up the fuel-rich rock. This is a 24-7 industrial process in which thousands of trucks are needed to bring one well into production. It's been linked with groundwater contamination and methane migration in some states, though the industry says that if it's done right, it's safe. Fracking might seem at odds with Amish life. The Amish came to America beginning in the 18th century, and they abstain from some of the technologies that Americans take for granted. But don't judge them by their horse and buggy, says David McConnell. He's an anthropologist at Wooster College in Ohio who studied local Amish communities. You know, we tend to idealize the, the Amish and see them as all natural and organic. But that's just not the case. They are not Luddites. They're not stuck in the past uh, with respect to technology use. Uh, rather, the Amish believe that any decision about technology needs to be balanced with a discussion about the impacts of those technologies on community life. 
And sometimes that means embracing new technologies. That's why some Amish choose to plant genetically modified crops and use pesticides. Amish generally don't feel a need to preserve the environment for the environment's sake, either. McConnell says this can be traced back to a basic tenet of Amish life, religion. Most Amish would believe in a literal view of Genesis. They would believe that the earth was made by God and that humans have dominion over the earth. And that the earth is there for the benefit of humans, to use as they see fit. At the same time, McConnell says, this dominion requires the Amish to be good stewards of the land. Many Amish are aware of the environmental debates over fracking, but so far there have been no reported cases of contamination in Carroll County. Hi guys, 10 bells or 20, 10 or 20. Four bucks, a pound of three and a half, man, three, At the Carroll County auction, Amish farmers mingle around huge stacks of hay that are getting sold off. The Amish here have almost all leased their land to oil and gas drillers. A young Amish carpenter says his father-in-law built a new barn with his lease money. I ask one Amish man if he's worried at all about his water. He says, you worry about water, but what are we going to do about it? He'd leased his land to Chesapeake and said he would take the company at its word, that if anything happened to his well, the company would come back in and fix it or provide him with other sources of water. Among those milling about the auction was Kathy Garsick. Well, I came to look at hay and I love to ba uh, buy baby calves. She's English. That's how the Amish refer to those outside their community. She lives in the nearby town of Sayo. She works at a grocery store and has been able to live a little more comfortably because of leases on her land. In conversations with her Amish neighbors, she's learned that oil and gas money has helped them out, too. They're allowing this to go on because it benefits them, too. Uh, they have bills uh, just like we do, and they've got mortgages, and they're paying their bills and farming with the money that they've received from the oil and gas business. The Amish talk about not wanting to let the outside world in. That's why they live the way they do. But to keep that way of life, some are starting to let the energy industry, one very modern aspect of our outside world, onto their farms and into their communities. They're hoping it's a good gamble to take. In Carroll County, Ohio, I'm Reed Frazier for Living on Earth. Reed's report came to us by way of the public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Just ahead, the world's biggest organism. But first, this note on emerging science from Naomi Ehrenberg. what some lucky caterpillars living in a Michigan State University laboratory are saying. These larvae were fed leaves, engineered to contain significantly more oil than average leaves. The experiment was conducted by a research team at MSU. Their leafy goal is twofold. First, to increase plant production of biofuels, and second, to create more nutritious feed for non-human animals. Until now, most biofuel research has worked on seeds, where oil naturally occurs as food for the nascent plant. But the MSU team is experimenting with oil production and storage in leaves, hoping to double energy capacity by using more of the plant. The team inserted a gene from green algae into the leaf of thalecress, or Arabidopsis thaliana. 
That's a small flowering plant widely used in genetic research because of its relatively short life cycle. The next phase is where the caterpillars come in. To prove that the modified crest leaves were a good source of oil, the team fed them to the fuzzy little crawlers who gobbled them up and grew a bit more roly-poly than caterpillars in a control group. The next experimental step will be to find a way to commercialize this development by boosting oil production in algae and grasses that can grow on land unsuitable for agriculture. So when you next drive past a grassy field, you could be looking at a future source of fuel for your next fill-up. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Naomi Arenberg. Quick quiz now. What is the largest living organism on Earth? No, it's not a blue whale. It's a tree, a quaking aspen. That's right, a single quaking aspen in Utah covers 106 acres of land and is estimated to weigh more than 6,000 metric tons. Aspen trees flourish in much of North America, but in the western U.S., a genetic adaptation allows them to propagate not by seed, but by cloning. By some estimations, the aspen grove known as pando, that's Latin for I spread, could be shoots from a clone as much as 80,000 years old. That means it started sprouting when modern humans were migrating out of Africa. But the world's largest organism is now under threat. Here to explain why are Paul Rogers, director of the Western Aspen Alliance at Utah State University, and Karen Mock, professor of conservation genetics and molecular ecology at USU. Aspen as a species has two basic ways of reproducing. One is by seed and one is by root shoots. And if you're talking about a single clone or a single genetic individual like Pando, then that is, you're, you're probably looking at roots that sprout from pre-existing trees. Now, why do Western Aspens reproduce this way, but the ones that we have out east don't? Well, they actually both, all across the range, they reproduce both asexually and sexually. It's just a matter of proportion. And so in the east, in, in northern environments, it appears that they, uh, seed reproduction is a whole lot more common. And therefore, the clones tend to be a little bit smaller. In the west, seed reproduction is a little more episodic. Seed reproduction is not as common as it is in moister landscapes. So it's a matter that it's too dry then? Yeah, and that the opportunities for seeding, the conditions that are just right for seeding, uh, don't always occur together at the same time as you have seeds. But is Pando a girl tree or a guy tree? It's a male. <laughs> so Pando is a male aspen, but uh, really at the end of the day is essentially sterile. Yeah, it's apparently a triploid, which means it's got three copies of its chromosomes instead of the usual two in aspen. And um, that condition means that it can do just fine vegetatively, but when it comes time to produce, in this case, pollen, the pollen grains are not likely to lead to the production of seed. In terms of evolution, how smart is this for a plant to not be able to reproduce sexually? Well, as a single plant, it's probably, especially in the West, it's probably great insurance so that you can persist a long time in, in certain landscapes in between these episodes of sexual reproduction. Um, as a population, it's a little bit more questionable because you, as a population, if you lack genetic diversity, you really are at risk of not being able to adapt to changing conditions. So how are scientists able to estimate uh, Pando's age? 
I hear that this could be as much as 80,000 years old, but there are not exactly any individual trees available for counting the rings there, right? We all wish we knew the exact age of Pando or had some tool that we could use to get precise ages on certain clones. We really don't know the age. The 80,000 years was an estimate based on really the rates of expansion of Aspen as well as backward projections of what climates were thought to be like. And so it's that's a super rough estimate. We don't really have a good way to know that it's 80,000 years old. Paul Rogers, Pando isn't doing so well right now, though. What's going on? Well, that's correct, Steve. Right now, we have a lot of mature trees. Um, most of the stems are about 130 years old. And aspen typically lives about 100 years, give or take a a 50-year period. So at any rate, we're around that period where we would expect those stems to be dying off. The issue here uh, with pando currently is that there's very little to replace it. So we have almost no vertical diversity. If you think of a human population, you might think of toddlers, teenagers, middle-aged people, and, and mature adults to be sensitive there. And what we have is a lot of mature adults that are starting to die fairly rapidly but we don't have those extra generations to back them up. And so that's the key to the problem there. So what are the stressors for Pondo now? There's continual browsing of the young shoots, and these are very nutritious, very edible, and primarily to larger uh, browsers, both domestic and wild. So we have elk, deer, sheep, and cattle are the main culprits across the West. But we have to note here that Pando and a lot of aspen in southern Utah are growing in a fairly dry climate. So the reproduction is fairly slow as it is. And so even a small number of browsers, in this case uh, we think deer, can really keep the next generation or the next set of um, stems at bay. And that looks like the situation that we have on the ground now. Now, I understand that you're working on the idea of putting a fence around Pando to keep out the grazing animals. How's that working out? Oh, that's correct. This sort of rapid die-off of mature trees has brought us into, into a triage mode, you might say, with the Pando clone and that we are planning to put up uh, an initial set of fences around about half the clone this coming summer. And the U.S. Forest Service is really instrumental in in having all that done because it's uh, in a touristy area near a recreational lake, and it's also a tourist attraction in and of itself, the Pando clone. And who's going to watch the fence? I mean, if uh, there's a hole in the fence, the elk will find there's good eating. You're exactly right. So if you can imagine yourself sort of walking down the street and you look into an ice cream store and there's no ice cream out on the street and it's a hot summer day, that's kind of, I think, what the browsers, the deer and elk are seeing inside that fence. And so if there's a breach, even one breach for a few days or a week in the fence, and this is a lot more common than than folks might think, that trees fall down and they fall over the fence and animals get in and, and they can eat everything. So you could lose essentially a year or more of trying to protect protect this clone with one or two small breaches and a week or two going by. And if your deer or anything like our deer out here in the east, uh, they can jump. That's true. And, and, you know, I found out they can get under the fences, too. They are quite crafty. And some of these deer have gotten trapped in there. And then it's unhealthy for the deer as well because there's not a water source in there and they can be essentially caged in. Could it be there are not enough wolves? 
There could be that there's not predators. That's certainly a factor in there. But we also have this whole system sort of pushed a little further to the edge because of climate. So we feel like we're accelerating the rate of die-off for the mature trees. And the more mature trees that are dead, the engine underground, which is the root system, has less energy to push up new recruits. I understand this is the largest known uh, Aspen clone, but of course that doesn't mean that there aren't potentially bigger ones out there. Where are you guys looking for them? We don't have a program where we're actively looking for large clones. Both of our guesses are that there are probably larger clones out there, but there's not a systematic survey going on to find such a thing. Um, This clone was probably discovered because a road goes right through the middle of it. (laughs) It also has some morphological differences, some differences in the leaves and the stems from the adjacent clones, and so the boundaries are pretty easy to see. So when the leaves come out in the spring, do they all come out at the same time? Basically, yes. It's a little bit dependent on the size of the particular tree, but that is one of the most reliable ways actually to distinguish different clones because their timing and their day length perception does tend to be a little bit different. And then at the end of the season, they pretty much drop the leaves at the same time or change color at the same time? They do, but it's pretty striking. You can look across these western landscapes and see very clear outlines of uh, different leaf colors. It's very dramatic and beautiful. Tell me what it was like when you first saw Panto. That's a great question, Steve. The first time I went there, I actually saw one of those deer caught inside the fence, (laughs) and the Forest Service uh, individual who was giving us the tour was sort of embarrassed. But uh, what I saw there was a very dry forest. We walked all through it, and this was only about five years ago. We didn't see near the rate of the overstory or the mature trees dying as we do now. So something seems to be happening there fairly quickly, and perhaps there's some sort of threshold that's been crossed in terms of drought and insects and disease. I mean, we can fence it off, but we cannot fence all the Western landscapes. Really, it's a microcosm for a much larger problem, particularly in the Southwest, but in many parts of the Western states. Karen, what was it like when you first saw Panda? Oh, <laughs> to me, it's, it's philosophically, it's just sort of a mind-blowing issue that you could have that many trees come from one seed and live for such a long time. It really, I think it challenges our human notions of um, both individuality and, and mortality, and I, it's kind of fun to be challenged that way. Karen Mock is a professor of molecular ecology at Utah State University, and Paul Rogers is director of the Western Aspen Alliance at uh, USU. Thank you both for taking this time. Thanks for having us on, Steve. Thanks so much. Coming up, some rambunctious dogs can learn to help people. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Life on our planet is incalculably diverse with organisms that have evolved to fill every available habitat. 
but ecosystems are interdependent, and if you remove a species, you can upset the whole balance. Today, reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro brings news of one particular animal and its vital role on Mexico's prairie. Gerardo Ceballos is only 54, but he feels like he's racing against a clock. I don't have so many years left. Ceballos is refusing to let his time run out before restoring a special place in his native Mexico. Our story actually starts well before Ceballos was born, back in the 1800s, when cattle ranching was surging through the prairies of North America, from Manitoba, Canada, all the way down to Chihuahua in Mexico. And this is where the real heroes of our story come in, though at the time they were no heroes to the cattle industry. I'm talking about Sinomus ludovicianus, or black-tailed prairie dogs. Prairie dogs are a really nice animals. They are the size of a relatively large cat. They're a kind of squirrel that can stand on two legs to survey the grasslands for predators. And prairie dogs thrived in North America. Probably 30 billion prairie dogs used to live in those grasslands. But ranchers came to believe that prairie dogs were competing with their cattle for grass and that cows and horses were breaking their legs by stepping into the prairie dog burrows. Opinions are divided on just how serious these problems were, but many ranchers were convinced, and with support from the U.S. government, they launched an all-out war on the prairie dogs. One weapon of choice was a kind of nerve toxin. It's a poison that will produce convulsions, a failure of the lungs and the heart. It's a really nasty thing. Tablets of this stuff were tossed down into the burrows where they produced a toxic vapor that killed everything in its wake. We're talking about probably billions of prey dogs. Billions that were killed by this toxin? By poisoning and then by the advance of agriculture. It has been one of the most dramatic, drastic exterminations of an animal by humans. Within 50 to 60 years, prairie dogs were eradicated from 98% of the area they used to call home, from 30 billion animals to one or two million. Without prairie dogs, the prairies transformed. In Mexico, the desert moved in, thanks to a shrub called mesquite. It pushes a deep root into the earth, sucking up water, and it attracts small animals that devour the grasses ringing the mesquite. Prairie dogs can't stand the plant. It blocks their view of the horizon where a predator might be lurking. So they do whatever they can to get rid of it. They chew up the roots, they suck on the stems, they run around like little gardeners keeping the desert at bay. So with very few prairie dogs left, the mesquite helped create desert scrubland until there was little grassy prairie remaining. And with the arrival of the desert, you lose the ability of this landscape to maintain wildlife and plants, but also the scrubland is no good for cattle. So the land no longer supported the very ranching it was altered for. Let's fast forward now to the summer of 1987, when Ceballos was in the middle of his doctorate in Arizona. He and his wife were driving back to Mexico through what used to be the grasslands in Chihuahua, an area he'd never visited before. It was pretty much all desert, but then one day... We were not prepared mentally to see what we saw. Grasslands waving in the wind. This area had been spared. It was mind-blogging because all the way to the horizon, there were prey dogs and prey dogs and prey dogs. And then the next day, we saw badger. Badgers are very rare in Mexico. Golden eagles were also very rare in Mexico. And we saw more than 20 there in one single day. It hit me immediately. The idea that prairie dogs should have some role. Some role in making the prairie possible. 
In the last 20 years, as an ecologist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, Ceballos has shown that prairie dogs are a keystone species. That is, everything in the grassland ecosystem depends on them. Their burrows provide shelter for small mammals. Predators like coyotes and hawks feed on prairie dogs. These days, Ceballos is resuscitating the prairies by reintroducing the prairie dogs. Within one year, they destroy most of the mesquite. He's also reintroducing black-footed ferrets, a species that hasn't been in Mexico for at least 100 years, pronghorn antelopes, bighorn sheep, wolves, even bison, which he's getting from the U.S. He's partnered with environmental groups and the government to create a reserve that protects these species and that offers local people ways to benefit economically from the grassland. A good scientist has to do good research, but then has to translate it into action. There is no way that we can continue just being like historians, recording all the things that we're losing, instead of becoming actors. Now, my main objective in life is to save as many species of plants and animals as I can. Which is why, even at 54, Ceballos feels he doesn't have a moment to waste. He has a legacy to leave his country. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. Our story on prairie dogs is part of the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media with help from the Encyclopedia of Life. To see some photos, follow the trail to our website, LOE.org, or check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. From hunting to pulling sleds to leading the blind, throughout history, dogs have performed a variety of jobs for their human companions. Now the Conservation Canine Program at the University of Washington is putting man's best friend to work for science. Joining us from the University of Washington is the founder of the Canine Conservation Program and director of the university's Center for Conservation Biology, Professor Samuel Wasser. Professor, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us a bit about these canine conservationists. What role do these dogs play in scientific research? Well, essentially, they are an extremely efficient way of acquiring samples. Most of the samples we use come from the animal's feces or scat, and that's because it's loaded with a variety of physiologic and genetic measures. So the dogs allow us to sample large bits of wilderness and also to sample multiple species often at the same time. What gave you the idea to use dogs in this way in the first place? Well, we wanted a method to sample animals according to their distribution in the wilderness. After looking at a number of different kinds of detection dogs, dogs that chase bad guys, dogs that are detecting narcotics, bomb dogs, it became uh, pretty clear that the narcotics dogs is kind of the perfect model for this system because what these are are very high-reward-driven dogs. So in our case, our dogs have an incredible play drive for a ball. They are so focused that if they know you've got the ball and you throw the ball, nothing in its way will stop it. What's really nice about this is that you can transfer this incredible drive into finding samples because the dog's so obsessed. Once it smells the sample, it knows it's going to get the reward from it. It will work tirelessly to find it. And once you find this sample, you can then subject it to all this DNA testing and such to determine exactly what the animal is and what its other habits are. We can use the DNA in the samples 
to actually figure out how many animals of each species there are in the wilderness. We know the location of all those samples, so we not only know how many individuals there are, but where they are located, what areas they're avoiding, and then we can get the physiological measures from those same samples again and see if they're in areas that they really prefer, are they in better physiological health than when they're in areas that they're avoiding. And in doing so, it allows us to see what are the pressures facing these animals, and as those pressures change, how does it affect their physiological health and well-being? Wow, that's a lot to learn from a bit of poop. It's fantastic, actually. Where do your dogs come from? I mentioned that the dogs have an extremely high ball drive. One of the things that happens to these kinds of dogs is when people get them as pets, they find out after the animal gets to be a year and a half, two years old, they simply can't keep it because it will just do anything for its ball and it's just relentless. It won't stop. So people end up giving those dogs to the pound or shelters, hoping that someone else will adopt them. But the problem is, is those dogs are so wild that nobody wants to adopt them. We go through the pounds and we look for the dog that has this completely obsessive drive for the ball that nothing else matters when it sees the ball. And that's the animal that we choose for our work. I understand that your conservation canines are working with the Jimez Mountain Salamander. How are they helping to save this salamander? Well, the Jimez Mountain Salamander is endangered. We have been working with the Nature Conservancy and with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to help them try to find these salamanders in their remote wilderness habitat. They're very small, they're just a few inches long, and they're no thicker than a pencil, and very cryptically colored. So they're very difficult to find, and when they're above ground, which is only for the short period of time in the monsoon when there's good rain, then you need to be able to locate them quickly. So our dogs have been trying to help the Nature Conservancy and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service locate these lizards in their remote habitat. I understand that your canine conservation program is working in the Alberta tar sands. It's a very controversial uh, area, this business of extracting oil from tar sands. What do these dogs uh, do up there? For four years, we brought dog teams into the tar sands. Now, we went through and we monitored the impacts of the oil development on the caribou, the moose, its competitor, deer, and their predator, the wolf, over the period when the oil companies were there, which is in the winter when the ground is deeply frozen. It's about minus 10 Celsius and the snow is two feet deep. And the reason it was important to know their impacts on the caribou is because the caribou were believed to be going extinct in Alberta within the next two decades. We collected samples over the landscape and the four dogs in 10 weeks we were there got about 1,500 samples, which allowed us to get accurate population estimates of the caribou, moose, and wolf. It allowed us to see their distribution over the landscape and allowed us to see their physiological health and how this was changing with the number of oil workers on the landscape. And the mission was to find out whether or not the caribou were in fact endangered, and you found... The first thing we found is that the caribou were not declining anywhere near as quickly as government projections had implied. There were well over twice as many caribou in the area than the government projected. How did this research then affect the government policy? 
The government was arguing that the best way to deal with the situation is to remove 60 to 80 percent of the wolves on the landscape. Well, what we showed was that the wolf was actually taking very, very few caribou. They were really heavily focused on deer. If they took 60 to 80 percent of the wolves out of the population, the deer would undergo a population explosion in the area, and deer eat everything. They also bring with them a number of different diseases like chronic wasting diseases, a variety of parasites that can jump to caribou and potentially really cause great harm to the ecosystem. So if wolves aren't the problem, then what is? The real problem appears to be food. In the wintertime, the vast majority of caribou are pregnant, and these pregnant females are eating almost entirely lichen. The lichen is very, very rich in glucose, and that is the primary food that a fetus consumes when it is developing. So that told us that lichen was the key nutrient that we needed to protect, and that variation in the amount of lichen transfers to variation in pregnancy health. One of the things that we also found was that the soil conditions that lichen grow in are the same kinds of soil conditions that are good for building roads sandy and uh, smooth and, and even. Yes. And what that implied was that the number of people on the landscape and therefore the number of people using those roads could be preventing the caribou from accessing the lichen, even though the lichen was there. They were afraid to go there because there are so many people on the landscape and people to them are also viewed as a predator. So the answer here was to ask people to stop spooking the caribou. Right. And of course, we're talking about an area where there is billions of dollars at stake here. So you can't just say, just stop. That's, that's just not going to happen. But what we were able to do was to make recommendations about how they could work on the landscape that would minimize the impacts on the caribou. And there are two really important things that, that we're trying to get them to implement. One is instead of extracting oil very diffusely over the entire landscape, if they were to concentrate activity at any point in time in a certain area, work that area, and then move to a new area, the caribou would be much better able to move around in areas that they can still access lichen. And the second recommendation is to be more thoughtful about where you're putting these high-use roads. Now, giving them recommendations is one thing. The nice thing now that's happening is the oil companies are coming to us and saying, okay, let's get together now and let's think about, you know, what is practical, what is not, and how can we best move forward in a manner that is going to put the animals at less risk. We'll see what happens. So how much do your dogs enjoy this work? <laughs> they love what they do. I mean, you think about it. You're dealing with a dog that is just a maniac for its ball, and all day long, it's running through the woods, smelling poop, and getting a ball reward. I mean, what could be better if you're a dog? Samuel Wasser is a professor of conservation biology and founder of the Canine Conservation Program at the University of Washington. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Ponzi Rutch, Aaron Wheats, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. 
Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms, www.redtomato.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.